a man backed his car out of the crowded parking lot and he accidentally hit the car behind him. Well, he got out, he surveyed the damage, he took out a piece of paper and he scribbled a note. He then stuck the note on the windshield of the damaged car. Well, bystanders who saw this, they assumed that he had written his name and his phone number and his insurance information. The man was being honest about his mistake. But when the owner of the car returned and took the note and read it, this is what it said. I've just smashed your car. People are watching me. They think I'm writing down my name and address, but I'm not. Have a nice day. The culprit had made folks believe he was something he was not. The man was a hypocrite. Well, the book of Malachi could be called the anatomy of a hypocrite. Here's Malachi's message in the words of the old country preacher. Be who you is, because if you ain't who you is, then you is who you ain't. Well, the hypocrite is a person who is who they ain't. It's been said a hypocrite is, a straight, is like a straight pin, pointed in one direction but headed in another. He's an actor on a stage. He speaks his lines. He plays his parts. But he himself is far away. He's somewhere else. Remember, Jesus saved his harshest words not for the blatant sinner, but for the bogus saint. And the same is true for the prophet Malachi. Verse 1 is an introduction. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now like the prophets that have preceded him, Haggai and Zechariah, Malachi was a Jew who returned to Jerusalem after the nation's exile in Babylon. But Malachi lived later, a century after Haggai and Zechariah. There were actually three waves of Jewish immigration back to Israel from Babylon. In 536 B.C., Zerubbabel led a crew of Jews that built the temple. In 458 B.C., a priest named Ezra brought a revival to the people. And in 444 B.C., a man named Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem to reconstruct the city's walls. And this man, Nehemiah, wow, what a leader. With a sword in one hand, with a shovel in the other, he fought off his enemies and he built the walls in just 52 days. Nehemiah served as the mayor of Jerusalem for another 12 years before he eventually returned to Persia. And I'm sure you've heard the old saying, while the cat is away, the mice will play. And that's exactly what happened in Jerusalem. For in Nehemiah's year-long absence, God's people went nuts. They acted like pagans. They ignored God and they neglected the temple and they forgot the scriptures. Oh, they were back all right. They had returned to the land but now they turned their backs on God. Now, Nehemiah eventually came back to Jerusalem, and he served a second term. But in his absence, 
God raised up the prophet Malachi to perform a spiritual CAT scan and to prescribe a remedy for the people's hypocrisy. And this is what we need. Now far be it from me to call anybody a hypocrite. But I suppose if all of us were sandwiches, there would probably be a slice or two of bologna in each of us. For there are areas in my life and in your life where we're not what other people think we are. We know we're not what we should be. We're not even what we want to be. We is who we ain't. We need Malachi to challenge our hypocrisy. Now he begins in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now you see, to become a hypocrite, a person has to harden their heart. And in order to harden their heart, they first have to deny God's love. But God had loved Israel. Even though they said he did it, God did love Israel. He had loved her. In fact, he responds to their accusation in verse 2. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Here is proof of God's love. He chose Jacob over Esau. Now understand, when God says he hated Esau, he didn't intend to be taken literally. Here's a form of Hebrew speech that we call hyperbole. It's the use of exaggeration to hammer home a point. And you see this often in the Bible. A good example is Luke chapter 14, verse 26. There Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't mean to be taken literally here. Other scriptures are clear. They tell us to honor our parents and to love our siblings. But Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. He's saying that our love for God needs to be so strong and so passionate that it makes natural affections toward parents and siblings look like hate. You see, God loved Esau and he loved Edom. But he loved Jacob and Israel with a special love. He chose Jacob for unique status and for spiritual privilege. And God's love for Israel was so overwhelming that it made his love for Esau look like hate. Of course, the question arises, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? And the answer is, we have no answer. It's a mystery. It's hidden in the wisdom and in the sovereignty of God. Once a man approached Griffith Thomas with this same question. The Bible says, God hates Esau. What gives? The pastor responded, I've got a more perplexing problem than that. The Bible also says God loved Jacob. And I don't understand that. You see, the real brain buster is not that God hates an evil person like Esau, but that he loves an evil person like Jacob. Jacob didn't deserve God's love any more than Esau. Jacob was a dirty thief. He was a double crosser. He was a con man and a liar. And yet God chose him anyway. You see, the only explanation for God choosing any of us is his amazing grace. 
I don't know about you, but I deserve a hot spot in hell. Yet instead, in Christ, I've been given spiritual status, special privilege. Hey, I have embraced this grace. I don't question it. I don't doubt it. I love it, and I'm thankful for it. Well, the Jews, they had denied God's love, but they had also despised God's name. Notice God asks in verse 6, excuse me. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am the master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Now the Jews, they claimed a relationship with God. They called him their father, their master. But nothing in their conduct substantiated that claim. You see, if God is your father, well then why don't you show him some respect? Why don't you treat him like a father? Why don't you be an obedient child? How can you call him master if you never serve him, if you don't bow to his will? You know, A.W. Tozer once wrote, it's not that people don't want God, it's that people have things they want more than God. We are determined to have what we want most. And we all need to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we want most? Here's a searching poem. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Hey, are you settling for a mere $3 worth of God? I hope you know, God doesn't come in small quantities. He comes in bulk only. You take Jesus for who He is, all of Him, or you don't truly follow Him at all. Well, in verse 7 here, God voices His third complaint. The Jews had denied His love, they had despised His name, and they had defiled His altar. They had trivialized worship. The Lord says to Israel in verse 7, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. The Jews offered worship in this rebuilt temple, but they begrudged the time it took and the effort required to do so. You know, it's been said of our society, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. And that is so true. Seldom are we truly serious about what we believe. Oh, we call ourselves believers, but are we? Do we? Like the Jews of Malachi's day, Christians today like to play at their Christianity. They lack passion. In verse 8, God gets specific. He says, when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor, would you? Would he be pleased with this, with you? You know, the law required a Jew to sacrifice the best of his flock. Instead, they were giving to God their leftovers. 
He says, take a crippled lamb. Take that sickly little lamb that you're giving to God. You know, the lamb that's going to die soon anyway. Give it to your, give it to old Sonny Purdue, your governor. See if he likes it. Don't give it to God. God sees through that kind of thing. I mean, don't give something sickly to God and then call it a sacrifice. You're not sacrificing anything. And yet, isn't this what we do when we send our old clothes that we wouldn't be caught dead wearing to the Salvation Army for some poor fellow to put on and wear? And then we call it an offering to God? Or when we spend all night reading a novel or watching television, and then we pick up our Bible right before we go to bed, read a verse or two, and wow, look at how devoted we are. Or we do what we want six days a week, then we begrudge the idea of giving God an hour and a half on Sundays. Or we think nothing of dropping big bucks for concert tickets, yet we're making a serious, man, we're making an abnormally generous, doing an abnormally generous thing when we slip that 20 in the offering box. I mean, are we giving to God the leftovers of our time and our talent and our effort and our money? Are you, are you just throwing God a few crumbs? Do you just toss God a bone from time to time just to keep Him off your back? Are you giving to God the sickly and scrawny of your flock? Hey, God wants our very best. The first fruits, the cream of the crop, the pick of the litter. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, David expresses his worship to God. He says, Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. If it doesn't cost you, friend, then how can you deem it a sacrifice? You're not sacrificing anything. Hey, give God only what you can afford, and you're just tipping. God was so displeased with their worship that he would have preferred if someone had just come into the temple and shut the place down, just shut the doors, rather than foster this charade. God says in verse 10, he says, Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you. It was all just a sham. They were going through the motions and God would have preferred if they just shut the thing down. And notice verse 13, he says, You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord. They viewed worship and serving God as a burden, as a drudgery, as a duty, not a joy. Oh, what a weariness, they said. You know, here's the worship leader. Oh, I can't sing for God today. My voice is just too tired out from screaming for my team yesterday at the game. Or here's the green team member. What was I thinking when I volunteered to cut this? There's so much grass at this place. Or the nursery worker. I got to go to church tomorrow and wipe those snotty noses again this week. I mean, if you have signed up to serve and yet you're always complaining, can't they find somebody else? Understand what you're doing. You are sneering at the altar of the Lord. You are insulting God. You are saying He is not worthy of the effort and time you're giving Him. And be careful. Because yes, God can find somebody else. Have we forgotten what an honor and what a privilege it is to serve the Lord? 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. It literally reads, a hilarious giver. Worship and service need to be lots of laughs and a delight and a thrill and a joy. And if it's not to you, it's time to troubleshoot the problem. The old Moody used to say, I may get tired in the work, but I never get tired of the work. Serving a God you love intensely will never get boring. Well, Malachi chapter 2 is a word to the priests of Israel. For there was a truth that they were failing to teach. And a sin was resulting that had become common to the people. Verse 11 explains. Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. And what was that institution? It was marriage. Now notice several points here that he makes about marriage. First, marriage is an institution that God loves. God created marriage. It was his idea and it was his ideal for all humans. And second, notice, it's a holy institution. Marriage is sacred. It's something special. God has labeled marriage the highest form, the highest level of commitment in human affairs. That means living together. Shacking up is a lesser relationship. Don't you dare say, well, in God's eyes we're married. No, you're not. You're making a mockery of God's will if you make that statement. Cohabitating is more an expression of your reservation than your dedication. I'm just keeping it real with you. Anything short of marriage is a convenience, not a commitment. You see, the Jews of Malachi's day, they marred marriage in two ways. First, they married unbelievers. And second, they practiced unbiblical divorce. Verse 11 says of Judah, He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now when God forbid Israel from marrying other races, He wasn't concerned about their racial purity, but their spiritual purity. The genealogy of our Lord Jesus contains racially mixed blood. Read Matthew chapter 1, you'll find that Rahab is in that genealogy. She was a Canaanite. Ruth is in that genealogy. She was a Moabite. God never had a problem with interracial marriage. But what bothered God was when a believer married a non-believer. God told the Jews not to marry these foreign women because He knew that they would drag His people into idolatry. You see, marriage is a powerful attachment. Your spouse has a strong and strange influence on you, for better or for worse. And God knew that it was a short jump from betting an idolater to bowing before their idol. This all means that if you want a happy, harmonious home, by all means, be careful that you marry a true believer. Marry an unbeliever, and your home will become a battleground. 
I got to tell you, I could fill milk jugs with tears that have been shed in my office by people who chose to ignore this scripture and marry an unbeliever. Oh, she thought she could change him. He said he'd be open. But stubbornness has a way of hardening after the vows are taken. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 warns us, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Be careful who you marry. Then be careful how you treat the person you marry. For God's second complaint about marriage is in verse 13. The Jews cried out to God. It says they weeped on the altar. They gave an offering. They wanted God's blessing. But He never responded. And they wondered why. And Malachi explains in verse 14, he says, The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see, they wanted God to promise them a blessing while they violated the promises they had made to their own spouse. You see, hypocrisy in the temple had come home. It was now hypocrisy at home. Several years ago, an article appeared in the Atlanta Constitution. It was entitled, Bless This Divorce, Couples seal separation in church. A couple in Decatur's First Christian Church wanted to end their marriage with a special church service. The pastor was quoted in the, in the paper as saying, Since both are members of this congregation, it seems appropriate to ask God to approve the ending of the marriage. What? Are you kidding Appropriate to ask God to approve of what His Word has already condemned? That's not appropriate. That's ludicrous. And yet some of you want your pastor to approve of your divorce. And I cannot. My job is to help you see marriage through God's eyes, not help you justify your own actions in your own eyes. Now, if you divorced on biblical grounds, and there are biblical grounds, then you have God's approval. And ours, but you don't need ours when you have God's approval. If you divorce, though, because you got bored with your spouse, or you felt unhappy, or you found a better offer, or it got hard and tough and difficult, hey, we love you. But for your sake, you need to repent. We urge you to repent. Because what you need more than your pastor's approval is God's forgiveness. I think verses 15 and 16 are two of the most vital verses on marriage in all of the Bible. We're told, but did he not make them one having a remnant of the Spirit? You see, marriage is oneness. Marriage is more than just a contract or a romance or a living arrangement. First and foremost, marriage is a spiritual oneness. It's a spiritual union. It's a mystical bond between a man and a woman. It brings them together in ways that they, that they don't even understand. It interconnects their lives and unravels their lives together in ways to where if you try to pull them apart, it doesn't come apart easily. It tears and it rips and it becomes brutal 
and ugly and bloody and hurtful. You see, marriage is a oneness. And why has he made it one? Again, verse 15, for he seeks godly offspring. He's saying to us that the best way to ensure well-adjusted, emotionally healthy, spiritually solid kids is to ensure that they have two parents united and growing in a loving relationship. And, And the opposite is true as well. A great way to damage and to wound those kids is to rip their parents apart. I don't have to tell you. Study after study after study shows the devastating consequences of divorce on the kids. God seeks godly offspring. And if for no other reason than your children, you should hunker down and you should work it out. And you should keep your marriage and family intact. Over the years, I've spoken to hundreds of couples on the verge of divorce And they're always eager to offer their excuses and their justifications. But seldom does anyone ask me, Pastor Sandy, what does God think about divorce? Nobody seems to be interested in what God thinks. They just want to tell me what they think. Well, ask or not, God tells us what He thinks about divorce. Verse 16. He says, For the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence. Now you see, here's the untold story. Divorce is a violent act. I'm going to show you what divorce is like. Brought this shirt with me today. It's a nice shirt I got at home. This is what divorce is like. That's what it's like right there. It It just rips the shirt apart. It just rips two lives apart. And I want you to notice here what's left behind. This is, not a, this is not a nice clean cut, is it? It's jagged. The edges here are jagged and they're frayed and they're now ragged edges. And so they don't go back very well together. Once it's been ripped, it can never be new again. It leaves behind jagged edges and hurt edges and it leaves behind scars. Repair it the best that you can, but it's never like new. Divorce is a violent act, and there's a scar. There's always a scar left behind. I've talked to many divorcees who years later wish that they had hung on a little longer, tried a little harder, and I implore you today to hang in there, to make it work. Do it for yourself. Do it for your kids. Do it for the God you say you love. For remember, God hates divorce. Now, Let me lighten the mood a bit. I'm pulling out a list of famous last words. Here's some famous final statements that were uttered from the lips of dying men. Here's one. You can make it easy. That train isn't coming so fast. Here's another one. Hand me a match I think my gas tank is empty. Hey, let's see if that gun is really loaded. Here's a final, final words from a dying man. Honey, these biscuits are hard as a rock. Here's another one. Step on it. We're only going 75. 
hey, just watch me dive off that bridge. And how about this one? What? Your mother is going to stay a whole month? Well, Malachi was God's final word before the coming of Jesus. Between Malachi and Matthew, we have what scholars call the 400 silent years. The Babylonian Talmud, which was a Jewish commentary on the Bible, it makes this statement. Malachi was last written and the spirit departed. Malachi was God's last word. It was his last written word before God sent his living word, his son Jesus. You see, God wanted ringing in the ears of his people. He, he wanted echoing in their minds for four centuries these last words. Malachi chapters 3 and 4. Here are God's preparation for the coming of his son. Malachi 3 begins with a prophecy. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This verse gets quoted over in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. And it gets applied to John the Baptist. John was Malachi's messenger. He was the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. Once there was a young pastor who was preaching his first sermon in his text. was right here. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, he is coming. He was told in the seminary that if he ever was at a loss for words, all he had to do was just repeat his text. It would sort of jar his memory, get him back on track. Well, on this particular morning, he was so nervous, he drew a blank on three separate occasions. Each time, though, he shouted, Behold, he is coming! It worked. It got him back on track. The third time, though, he, he got so excited, he slammed his fist down on the pulpit. He shouted his text. But then he lost his balance. And he fell off the platform into the lap of a little old lady that was sitting on the front row of the church. Well, he gets up, and he's so embarrassed, and he's so apologetic, and, and he's just... just so sorry for what's happened. And the little old lady finally looks at him and he says, Sonny, don't worry. It's not your fault. You warned me three times you were coming. <laughs> well, the Old Testament closes with a warning. God is coming. God is going to pay a visit to the fallen planet. Now, as we go through chapter 3, let me hit a couple of high points. Notice verse 2. For he is like a launderer's soap. I like that. When you get a stain in a garment that's really, really deep and you can't get it out yourself, what do you do? You take it to the laundromat. They can do it. Jesus is like the launderer's soap. He gets out the grimiest grime and the dirtiest dirt. He gets out what you can't get out yourself. Jesus removes those stains. Hey, if you feel dirty this morning and need a good scrubbing, come to Jesus. He's like a launderer's soap. Verse 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. This is comforting. God is immutable. He never changes. In a world where the only certainty is that nothing is certain, this is a great comfort to us. It's encouraging to know that God doesn't move the target. In fact, one day, if you wake up and you find yourself distant from God, well, then you can be sure that it wasn't Him that moved. 
It was you that moved. For God never changes. God is the anchor in a sea of flux. In Malachi 3 verse 7, God states, Return to me and I will return to you. But notice the Jews' reaction. They say, In what way shall we return? They didn't even know that they had drifted from God. And you see, here's where you need to beware. Because sin's deadliest trait is that it causes spiritual blind spots. Where we don't even see our own problems and our own deficiencies and our own shortcomings. We think all is fine when in reality God has issues with us. And God brings up a big issue here in verse 8 that he has with these people. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And he answers them, in tithes and offerings. Now robbing God sounds like a serious offense. I mean, you think of robbing God, you think of Judas Iscariot. He was Jesus' treasurer. And we know from the Gospels that he was stealing from the petty cash. Judas was skimming off the top. I mean, how low can you go to steal money from God's wallet? But you see, it's not just Judas. Because there are people in this room this morning who are as guilty as Judas who have been stealing God blind. And you've been doing it by refusing to tithe. In the Old Testament, the tithe was not yours to give. It belonged to God. You see, stinginess wasn't merely the absence of giving. It meant you were stealing from God what in reality belonged to Him. The word tithe means tenth. When Abraham went out to meet the high priest, he gave a tenth of his spoils. The Mosaic law called for several different tithes. They added up to nearly 33% of a man's income. And people often ask, are New Testament believers obligated to tithe? The answer is yes and no. Obligated to a percentage? No. But ignore the principle? Don't ignore the principle. Remember, Abraham is the father of our faith. It's because Abraham believed and received righteousness that we trust that through our faith we'll be made right with God. We follow Abraham's example. But let's follow it fully. For Abraham expressed that faith by giving a tithe, 10% of his money, back to God. You see, don't say you're trusting God if you never back it up. It's time to put your money where your mouth is. How can you say you trust God with your whole life if you can't give Him a token, a small token of your money, 10%, as a means of saying you love Him and you appreciate the other 90% that He's given you? Think about it. Verse 10 tells us that one of the reasons we need to tithe, he says, bring all of the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. In the Old Testament, God's house was the temple there in Jerusalem. And the needs of the temple and its priests were paid for from the people's regular tithes. And this is no secret. We need to be honest about this. 
Likewise, your tithes support the ministry of this church and its pastors. And if you stop tithing to your church, it won't be long before your pastors are out delivering pizzas. (laughs) Pastor James is going to start making home deliveries. I mean, you're going to call and nobody's going to be here because we're on somebody's front porch handing them a a pizza supreme. You see, here's a reason to tithe that's that's pretty close to my heart, quite frankly. It pays the bills and it feeds the pastors. That's a good thing. But there's another reason to tithe, verse 10. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now this is the only passage in the Bible where God challenges us to test Him. Often we're warned not to presume on God's mercy. But here He dares us to tithe, just to see if He won't open the windows of heaven. For 30 years now, Kathy and I have tithed our income. I receive my check, put it in the bank, and our very first check, is to Calvary. And God has blessed us so abundantly. He has honored that. And He has been so faithful to us. At times we've had little, but we have never been without. And I don't know anyone who has tied regularly to the Lord that has ever been without, that God has not come through for them when, he's, when they've needed Him. I agree with the philanthropist who was once asked, how is it you give away so much, yet you have so much left? And he replied, I shovel out, and God shovels in, and God has the bigger shovel. God dares you to try him. Go ahead, tithe, give that 10%, and see if he doesn't open up the windows of heaven in your life. You know, money's a lot like manure. Did you know this? Money's like manure. Stack it up, and it starts to stink. But spread it around... And it causes everything to grow. Give, and it will be given to you. Now in verse 14, Malachi changes the subject. The Jews complain, it is vain to serve God. In other words, where's the benefit? They're basically saying that it doesn't pay to serve God. And I, and I understand the feeling, I've been there too. I mean, you sacrifice your blood, your sweat, your tears, and then you look around and see very few tangible results. Well, Malachi answers their complaint in verse 16. He mentions a book of remembrance. You see, in heaven, there's a book that records every act of service to God. You know, what you do for God may never get mentioned in the here and now. It may never be appreciated on earth. Your name may never show up in a history book. But God has written it down in a far more important book. God does see. It does pay. Your goodness is being preserved for all eternity. You know, this world might despise us, but verse 17 tells us that God calls us my jewels. You are God's diamonds. You are God's valuables. Did you know that? There's a a Super Bowl commercial that's running in heaven tonight during the game. It's paid for by God, and it's a reminder to the heavenly host. You see this spinning globe. Then you see the words, earth, cost, 
a few tons of dirt. Next you see the stars and the galaxies. Then the words, heavens cost a few amps of electricity. Then you see the wonders of nature and the animals. And then the words, fauna and flora cost a little creativity. Finally, you see your face and the words, my people, priceless. You're God's valuables. God says, you are my jewels. Chapter 4 is a continuation of chapter 3 in the question, does it pay to serve the Lord? And God's answer, wait until payday. Hey, when Jesus returns to earth, all accounts will be settled. Chapter 4 focuses on his second coming. Verse 1 reads, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. In other words, in that final day, the proud will burn up, but the humble will get healed and get healthy. Each year at Passover, Jewish families, they set a place at the table for Elijah. And their tradition is based on Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The prophet Elijah will return before the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 11 records the ministry of two men who appear during the great tribulation of the last days. They both have miracle powers. One of the men brings drought and he calls fire down from heaven. Both events occurred in Elijah's ministry. It could be that one of those two witnesses is Elijah. Well, notice the last word in the Old Testament. It's the word curse. The Old Testament law produced a curse. But in contrast, if you flip ahead to Revelation 22, verse 21, you'll see that the last word in the New Testament is grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Notice this. The old covenant left mankind under sin's curse. But Jesus brings us into God's grace. And this is why we can end our hypocrisy. This is why we can drop the charade. For when we confess our sins, when we come to Jesus, we no longer have to be who we ain't when God forgives who we is. Isn't that great? God wants to forgive you and set you free and help you be the person God intended you to be.